Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Joe Stiglitz, Columbia professor, winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics, former chief economist of the World Bank, former chairman of the U.S. President's Council of Economic Advisors, and plenty more. In May of this year, Stiglitz co-authored a report that made a compelling case for a green fiscal recovery. He's a prolific author who has regularly argued that we need to address inequality, including in his most recent book, People, Power, and Profits, which actually makes the case for how we might save capitalism from itself. And he's a leading champion of this idea that we need to reconsider how we measure success. We discuss all of these ideas in addition to the question on the minds of many in these difficult economic times, how should we approach new government spending and should we be concerned about mounting deficits? Professor Stiglitz, thanks so much for joining me. Nice to be here. As we've reset our agenda here in Canada recently, our government stated that climate action will be a cornerstone of our plan to support and create 1 million jobs across the country. For the skeptics or for the fiscal conservatives who worry about big promises sometimes, why is a green fiscal recovery package also a fiscally responsible one? Well, first of all, let me say, I think not acting is so much more costly than acting. In a sense, we don't have a choice. The damage that would be done by not taking the appropriate action will be deep and long lasting. But resources are scarce. And the implication of that is that we have to make our Canadian dollars do double duty, obviously protect the most vulnerable. They have to provide for the health, prevent the spread of the disease. That's obviously first priority. But they have to help build back the economy, restore full employment, but they have to build back the economy better, to use a phrase that's become very popular, build back better not to go back to where things were in January 2020. So many of the weaknesses have been so badly manifested, uh, the inequalities. And a critical point about building back better is making it a green recovery. We realized that we needed to make a transition to a green economy. And we can make our money do double duty. As we are resuscitating the economy, we can also make sure that that money is helping the green transition. You noted also, obviously, we need to support individuals for this time of need, and and that comes first. And so obviously, focusing on consumption still matters today for for many. But you also noted in your May paper with colleagues that recovery packages, so not support packages and emergency packages, but the recovery packages could exacerbate intergenerational inequities if they're focused on consumption rather than productive investment, delivering sustainable returns for future generations. And I personally, I found that generational argument a particularly compelling one because it is not often how government spending decisions are put into any sort of context. Well, obviously, there's always a worry that when you're undertaking debt and there's massive amount of debt, that you're putting a burden on future generations. But I always view this, that when people talk about debt, you look at the balance sheet of a firm or the balance sheet of a nation. You look at the liability side, that's the debt, and the asset side. And as you incur debt, if you are also creating assets, then you're creating a stronger economy. And so the legacy that you're leaving to future generations can be stronger. Yes, there's more debt, but there's also more assets. In fact, I've been involved in a a suit on behalf of 21 young American children under 21 
against the Trump administration, pointing out that his environmental policies are actually injuring them. They're impairing their future. And each of them has their own story of the way in which Trump is impairing their future. But the key point is that through climate change, they're inheriting a, a world that is more fragile. In one way or another, they will have to pay the price. As we recover from the pandemic, if we can make those investments, we're putting less of a burden on our children for bearing the costs of climate change. I think that's right. We often talk about debt in and of itself as this generational burden, but we don't talk about the cost of inaction as a generational burden and the need, therefore, when we spend today to make sure that we are spending for tomorrow. And you noted in the five key priority areas in a green fiscal recovery package, clean fiscal infrastructure was item number one, because you are then building out a productive and sustainable asset for, for, for the longer term. When we talk about debt, though, in the last fiscal update here in Canada, which was in July, the government estimated a deficit this year of $343 billion. It may well be more at the end of the day. And for reference, our pre-COVID annual budget was about the same. Our parliamentary budget officer has said this level of spending is not sustainable if maintained for another year or two. Obviously, we need to support people in this crisis for as long as this crisis lasts. How do we reconcile the need to support people through an emergency, but also having an eye on sustainable finances for the longer term? Well, that's exactly the point I've been making. If as much of the money as we spend actually goes to building a more sustainable economy, then we're leaving a legacy of assets. So the well, one side of the balance sheet is is worse. We have more liabilities. The other side is so much stronger that it offsets the increase in the in the liability. But there's another point I think I would emphasize in the current context. What is sustainable depends on economic circumstances and it depends on economic policies. Right now, interest rates are essentially zero. In fact, in real terms, they're negative. How much debt can you sustain if the amount you have to spend to service that debt is zero? Well, it's obviously a lot more than if the interest rate were three, four, five, or 10%. It won't be taking away from the budget. So the fact of the matter is, we are in a very peculiar moment of time when interest rates are zero, negative in real terms, so that what we can sustain is much larger. Let me put it in one other way that maybe make it clear. At the end of World War II, the deficit GDP ratio was for the United States was something like 135%, depending on how you measure it. In the UK, it was about 200 and some percent. In the case of the United States, the period after World War II was the fastest period of growth. And it was a period of shared prosperity. So every group grew, but the people at the bottom grew more rapidly than those at the, at the top. President Eisenhower, there was a bipartisan belief that the way to respond was not to cut back spending, but to grow the economy. So under President Eisenhower, we had a national infrastructure program, highways. We had a science and technology program. We had a national education program. And guess what? We grew very rapidly. And and because we had very high taxes at the top, we grew together. So I think that's the lesson. And with interest rates being so low, there are obviously any number of opportunities 
for those kinds of investments. We could talk about climate action up and down. We could also talk about just investing in people through this crisis, because we know that if we weren't to have invested in people significantly by way of emergency dollars directly in their pockets or by supporting businesses in this crisis, the path to recovery on the way outside of this would be so much worse. And we've saw of that $343 billion deficit, 80 some odd billion dollars is already because of an economic downturn and how much worse that number would have been, but for stepping in. We could also talk about childcare. We could talk about all sorts of different ways of stepping in, in a low interest rate environment. Of course, interest rates won't be zero forever. And so economists here in Canada have started to talk about fiscal anchor and and what should that fiscal anchor be? Should it be uh, returning to a specific debt to GDP ratio? Should it be returning to balance? at some given year in the future, do you have a sense of how to maintain a fiscal anchor? Or is it simply the question at all times is, let's look at what the carrying costs are, let's look at what the return on the specific investment is, and then let's make the decision as it stands. My view is very much the latter. You know, if you've gone through a period where you've underinvested, there's gonna be higher returns to investment, and that's the time to spend because you're generating more revenues than the cost of servicing that debt. If you were in Japan and you paved over the whole country with infrastructure, uh, you'd be in a different situation. I can tell you from America, we've underinvested for 25 years in our infrastructure. So for us, there, there is almost no limit to the amount of infrastructure spending that would be productive in the United States. There's no limit to how much we'd be spending on education right now. In our standardized tests, the United States does much more poorly than many countries around the world. We're really mediocre. And that shouldn't be the case for a country with a leading research universities uh, and a country that would like to put itself uh, at the top of the uh, pack. So for us, it seems to me, if we spend our money well, there is no no limit to what we should be doing now. And eventually, you have to revisit that question constantly. And so the real question for a parliamentarian like myself, today, I should be more specifically focused on the ways in which the dollars are spent and making sure that it is a sound investment. Exactly. And are there good projects? The Green Transition is an example of a good investment project. Uh, a lot of those also are increasing efficiency, you know, just because they make you rethink the way we live and work in the same way that the computer changed the way we functioned. At this juncture, not dealing with climate change is going to have a lot of costs. You know, the United States, again, I don't want to keep talking about the United States, but I have seen no numbers there. We've seen the cost that climate change has had in the U.S. economy. The, the, the wildfires in California, you know, there's going to be a lot of deaths from people who suffering from from the the very very dirty air that uh, we got the floods in Iowa the hurricanes uh, we've we've seen the ravages of climate change and and you know in some years it's been two percent of GDP destruction you know that's enormous I'm going to ask you to keep talking about the United States actually because I, I in reading your book people power and profits, I was reminded about 
the connection between inequality and slow growth. That people frame inequality so often as a challenge of fairness, and, and it is, of course is a challenge as it relates to fairness, but it is also an economic challenge, as you make clear in your book, and as, as others have made clear as well. And we suffer from inequality, in, income inequality, and, and even more so wealth inequality here in Canada, but the United States is so much more pronounced. You have written recently in Reclaiming American Greatness, an article of yours, you referenced Martin Luther King's writing of 50 years ago. You've referenced the fact that racial and economic injustices are, are inseparable in the United States, and you've called for a comprehensive plan to address income inequality. And while we don't face exactly the same challenges, we, we, we do face related challenges here in Canada for a parliamentarian who is concerned about tackling both income and wealth inequality. Comprehensively. <laughs> you, you have to do, this is one of the things where you have to do everything at one time. You're absolutely right about the cost of not dealing with inequality. I wrote a book called The Price of Inequality, where the title said, we're paying a very high price for our democracy, for our society, but even for our economy in allowing the inequality to grow as large as it is. Now, I put a lot of emphasis on uh, some of the mechanisms by which inequality increases. For instance, the power of corporate concentration, market power, the consequences of insufficient power of workers, the weakening of labor unions, not as bad in Canada as in the United States, but that's really the way globalization has been managed in ways to further weakening workers' bargaining power. But there's also the question of opportunity, the fact that in a society like America, uh, advantage gets transmitted from one generation to the next. And so if you're born at the bottom, the prospects of getting the education that allows you to, to live up to your potential is very bleak. And that, of course, undermines both our sense of solidarity as a country, but also our economic prospects. We're wasting our most valuable resource, our human resource. So I, I emphasize paying a lot of attention to how inequality is, is created and trying to target each of the mechanisms that helps create this inequality. Another example, just in the United States, those at the top pay a lower tax rate than those below. You know, we talk about progressive taxes. We have regressive taxes. A tribute to some of the people at the top, like Warren Buffett, they say, this is outrageous. They've called for fair taxation. You know, Warren Buffett said, I should pay as high a tax rate as my secretary. So there are people who actually have a set of values and are rich people saying, we should be taxed more. Of course, then we have a president of the United States who doesn't pay taxes. <laughs> yeah. $75 of taxes at 2017. Yeah, it leaves one shaking one's head. I, I, I was shocked. I Shocked, obviously, by everything that President Trump does. But I also shocked. You know it's bad. But then reading that Bezos, Buffett, and Gates together, just the three individuals and, and their families have more money and wealth than the bottom 50% of the American population. When you read it in print, when you see it spoken out loud, it is hard to fully comprehend and take in. That's right. And, and further, when you start to recognize that their wealth is a result of public investment, they would not have been able to make the money if we didn't have the internet. Who made the investments in the internet and the browsers? It was the public. Right. So they were able to appropriate some of the returns from 
our investments in technology, but they've done it for themselves. I think that's important to realize that no one, no one could have got where they are without a system of law and order, rule of law, and public R&D investments. You've mentioned shared prosperity already in the course of our conversation. You've written extensively about shared growth. And here in Canada, we at times have talked about inclusive growth. Most recently, through our Liberal Party convention, we have a number of us have pushed for a guaranteed basic income. Another opposition party, the NDP, has called for a guaranteed livable basic income. There are some proponents of UBI, and I note in your book you respond to the UBI advocates to say, well, it's incredibly expensive. I don't think the politics probably allows for it. In any case, for most people, work is an important part of life, and we should be focusing on guaranteed work and, and supporting work rather than income support. At the same time, you, you referenced MLK's writing 50 years ago. He also talks about a guaranteed income. In the Kerner report that you referenced in your writing, they talk about income supplementation. And I do wonder, maybe not money for everyone, because not everyone needs money, but income supports for those who have lost work, income supports for the disabled, income supports for people in need, making sure that there is a permanent strength in the social safety net and effectively a minimum income. Anyone below a certain income level would receive a top-up support. Is that a kind of program that you would get behind, or do you think it ought to be focused through unemployment insurance and otherwise focused on on jobs and jobs first? I think you need a, a basic safety net for society. But what I wanted to emphasize is that after World War II, we made a commitment in the United States and most other countries to provide jobs for everybody who was able and willing to work. And we have not lived up to that commitment. I feel very strongly because... I was chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors that was created by that legislation to fulfill that promise. And we failed. And, you know, uh, the, the fact is that we have particularly failed for minority groups, for particular groups in our society. If we had succeeded in doing that, we would have a much more equal society. And I also emphasize this because... Right now, I see an enormous amount of work that needs to be done. Uh, we talked about the green transition. I, the, uh, we have to care for the elderly, the sick, uh, our children. There's a lot of work that needs to be done and a lot of people who want to work. And I view it as a very deep systemic failure that we cannot connect the work that needs to be done with the people who want to do the work. And so that's why I put the first priority on that. But as you said, there are always going to be people who are disabled, who for one reason or another, aren't going to be able to work. And we need to have a safety net for them, a system of social protection. And whatever job protection guarantee program we have, there are going to be holes in it. And we can't let people in a humane society, in a rich country, we can't let people fall through those holes. And, and you did know when you when you wrote about UBI, you did indicate that it would eliminate bureaucracy and provide a backstop for those who fail to get jobs. And probably it's possible to take from those that call for universal basic income and pare it down to a basic income and say, well, let's make sure for those who fall below a certain income level for whatever reason, there is a floor of support. And then let's make sure we're encouraging people to get jobs. There's There's education and training programs that we're providing. And we're then, in some cases, maybe providing a backstop. You, you point to the Indian example where 
there's a government backstop for unskilled labor to do tasks in Canada. We talked about planting trees. You, you could imagine any number of different jobs that people could do regardless of, of background and skill. When you talk about matching the people who want jobs to the jobs that we need done, there's unskilled jobs that could potentially be available to many. And the challenge really, I think, comes down to how do we make sure the skill sets are in place to meet the needs of the 21st century and, and the jobs that are going to exist? Yeah, very much. But remember, you know, in, in the Great Depression, the United States had a number of programs like the Civilian Conservation Corps and the WPA, the Works Progress Administration. They left us a legacy of national parks that we are 80 years later still enjoying. Yeah. So these were government employment programs that were well managed. The needs were, people may not have fully appreciated the needs, but they really reshaped our country and our society. And the value of what they created has been enormous. When we talk about ensuring that there's shared growth, one aspect of the question is, is lifting people up. And, and the other aspect of the question is making sure everyone is paying their fair share. In Canada, we've talked about tackling this problem where companies are earning profits and, and revenue here in Canada, but not paying taxes in Canada. The OECD has started some of this work, but in your book, you note that that is a mild reform coming out of the OECD that is not likely to address the problem in full. In early July, they just announced their full answer, I suppose, to, to the problem. How on, on this question, and obviously no country can tackle it alone unless maybe you're the United States or China or potentially a collection of countries like the EU. Canada can't tackle it alone. But where does the OECD fall short and, and where can we lean in to improve these global rules? Well, the fundamental problem is what is called the transfer price system, which pretends that you can, as goods go cross borders, value the goods that are produced within each country. But but in fact, there's no way you value a shirt without sleeves, a car without engines, or there, there aren't any what they call arm's length prices. And in the absence of those arm's length prices, companies can manipulate their income. So they claim all their income is in a low tax jurisdiction or as much as possible. And we saw a dramatic example, Apple, right. tried to claim that all of its revenues in Europe originated by some 350 people in Ireland. We That's right. It's a lie. But uh, why would they do it? They did a deal with Ireland where they paid something like 0 0.2, 0.02% of the revenues as profits. And the digital era has opened up this opportunities for moving money around in ways to avoid taxation. So this ability of multilateral tax avoidance has become not only a drain on our society, the richest companies in the world not paying their fair share, but also creates an unlevel playing field. The small businesses that are operating just in Canada or in the United States can't compete with these multilaterals because they are paying taxes. It's the big companies that are not. It's, again, this perversity that I talked about before. The richest people are not paying taxes and the rest of the people are paying taxes. Yeah, everything's upside down. Distorts the economy. So one of the things I point out is that within the United States, we've given up on that transfer price system. We have a formulaic principle, you know, goods go back and forth from one state to another, and we have a simple way of administering the corporate income tax. And I've been advocating that model globally so that taxes are paid basically where the economic activity occurs. 
And obviously there'll be some disputes about that, but we need to stop that kind of tax avoidance. Part of the answer, and as you say, Canada can't do it on its own, but the EU and the US on their own can do it, and that would then Canada would be able to join in, <laughs> is a minimum global corporate income tax at 25%. I'm on an independent commission for reform of the international corporate tax system. And we've recommended that kind of minimum corporate income tax of 25%. And because it's really pure profits, it would actually not weaken economic growth, would not weaken investment. It just would create a, a revenue base that would allow more investments that would actually make our economies more productive. My, my last question, you are prolific in your writing, and not only your writing personally, but also you mentioned you're participating in a commission now. Well, I've also read your work from a commission over 10 years ago, Mismeasuring Our Lives. And mm-hmm. it is incredible that that work over 10 years ago with Amartya Sen and Professor Fatusi, I mean, even today, we're seeing only a small number of countries really take up the charge here. And Scotland and New Zealand obviously have moved towards looking at well-being. Here in Canada, we've promised to look at those two jurisdictions and we've promised to look at well-being and other measures to better measure quality of life, that everything isn't about GDP. GDP doesn't measure success in and of itself at all times. And as a baseball nerd and as a believer that what we measure matters for what we ultimately do. What would your best advice be for someone in my shoes as we take up this conversation? How can we best move forward domestically here in Canada with measuring things differently and measuring more holistically? Trying to broaden the metrics is absolutely essential. As you said, what you measure affects what you do. We advocated a dashboard. COVID-19 has highlighted the importance of that. U.S. has huge health disparities and a weak health system. And that's why we have 25% of the world's deaths and only 3% of the population. You want to know something about what is the health standing of the people in your population. You want to know about the environment. That's not included in GDP. You want to know how the fruits of the economy are being distributed. As you mentioned, GDP can be going up and the vast majority of citizens can be worse off. So you want to know how is the median person and people in the middle doing, How uh, what's happening to inequality. So I think a dashboard of a few key indicators, you know, five, 10, is absolutely essential. And uh, that would give you a, a much richer picture of how well society is doing. In the case of New Zealand, they were particularly concerned about the well-being of children. They were particularly concerned about the well-being of the Maoris, a, a group that had been historically discriminated against. And so in their case, their metrics are focusing on, on those aspects and are a part of the budgeting process. When the government does budgeting, they look at how are we using that budget to address the key issues that we think of are the problems in our society today? It's interesting. And then to bring it full circle, in the last parliament, I was pushing finance to consider generational accounting in our budgets because there is this concern and climate is the the best example of it, but where we are spending and we are ignoring and leaving behind younger Canadians. And in some cases, because they're not 
voting at the ballot box in any significant way, or they are unable to vote, but we are not fairly budgeting across generations. And again, the, the more that we're bringing to bear metrics and the way that we measure success and what success looks like will drive decisions and budget decisions ultimately down the road. So it makes a lot of sense. And practically, the OECD has a dozen or so metrics as part of a dashboard. If you were in my shoes, you would look to pull five or 10 out of that dashboard as a starting point and expand upon them for a Canadian context as necessary. That's right. And to think about, as you said, what are the issues? And I think intergenerational equity is a really important one. I feel it very strongly in the United States because our students graduating on average have $30,000, $40,000 of debt, can't buy a house, uh, have a hard time starting a family. It's having macroeconomic consequences now. So obviously, we're not only burdening them with a, a debt, we're burdening them with a hidden debt of having to deal with climate change. It may not be in the fiscal balance sheet, but it's a liability that they're going to have to deal with. So trying to create a dashboard that reflects the concerns of society. And one of the things we advocated in our our report was a dialogue, a dialogue within society of saying, what are the things that we ought to, for now, be focusing on? Well, Joe, I really appreciate your time. I hope after November that the federal American government is more closely aligned to your values uh, and this idea that we have to both tackle growth, but we also have to tackle inequality. And these are not different conversations. They are one and the same. And I appreciate all of your, your, your work and I appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons with Professor Joe Stiglitz. You can subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca, where you will also find links to various pieces that Stiglitz has written on the topics we covered. I'll leave you with this from his 2019 book, People, Power, and Profits. In this progressive agenda, government plays a central role, both in ensuring that markets work as they are supposed to, and in promoting the general welfare in ways that individuals on their own, or markets on their own, can't. If this program is to be accepted, though, we must disabuse ourselves of the idea that government is always and everywhere inefficient and obtrusive, and replace it with the notion that, like all human institutions, including markets, government is fallible and can be improved. The view that government is the problem, not the solution, is simply wrong. To the contrary, many, if not most, of our society's problems from excesses of pollution to financial instability and economic inequality have been created by markets and the private sector. In short, markets alone won't solve our problems. Only government can protect the environment, ensure social and economic justice, and promote a dynamic learning society through investments in basic research and technology that are the foundation of continued progress.